Please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 25. Um, if you don't have a Bible this morning, there are, are plenty underneath the seats uh, around you, and you can uh, just borrow that. Or if you don't have a Bible, please take it with you when you leave this morning as our gift to you. We'd love for you to, to have that. Uh, we're in Acts chapter 25, and um, we're going to start at verse 23. We're looking at a pretty long portion of Scripture this morning. We're going to go all the way through um, the entire chapter of, of 20, entire 26 chapter, excuse me. So Acts 25, starting at verse 23, and all the way through the end of 26. Luke writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those 
in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death, or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes that we may see wondrous things in your word and delight in them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning. Happy Easter. Happy Resurrection Sunday. In Luke chapter 21 and in verse 12, Jesus said this regarding his disciples. He said, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. To bear witness about what? To bear witness about Jesus. And right here we have Paul with an opportunity to bear witness about the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Now God in his providence has us right here in this section of Acts as we're continuing to go through the book of Acts. If you're visiting with us this morning, the way we we prefer to preach most of the time here is just verse by verse through different books of the Bible. And it's amazing how God providentially puts the scripture before us that's the next one to preach and just so happens to be with what we're either dealing with as a church or uh, whatever occasion might be coming up. And in this case, we have this section of Scripture, Acts chapter 25 and 26, which are really one unit right here on Resurrection Sunday, on Easter, where Paul is witnessing to the court of Festus about the risen Lord Jesus Christ. I love this scene 
in the book of Acts. It's absolutely captivating. It's a court scene. I don't know how many of you were like me. I like courtroom dramas. I like the, the old courtroom dramas, uh, like the old Perry Masons and stuff like that, but the modern ones as well, Law and Order, or any movie that has a courtroom drama. I just like the, uh, all the, the tension, the, the, the rhetoric, um, all the drama that's involved there in, in a courtroom scene. And as I look at this passage here in Acts chapter 25 and 26, I really wish there had been cameras present because I would love to have seen all of this. And Luke does a phenomenal job for us, giving us so much detail and, and interesting um, uh, dialogue here between Paul and the others here in this courtroom scene. So I'm kind of a, approaching this like it's a courtroom drama this morning and walking through this text. Now, when I was a kid, uh, most television shows uh, sort of wrapped up every week. You know, you had a show, you had a story, it was over at the end of the week, and you went to the next week. But these days, all the television shows seem to kind of run, every episode runs into the next one, like kind of like Lost or something, and if you don't catch one of them, you're lost. And so, so I'm going to start off with, those shows always start off with previously on Lost, and they give you a little bit of a recap. So previously in the book of Acts, let's get a little bit of a recap here to find out where we're at. So previously... We have to remember that Paul is concluding his third missionary journey. He has gone to Jerusalem to finish that third missionary journey. He has taken a great offering from the Gentile churches to the church in Jerusalem. At first, everything seems great, but Paul knows it's not going to turn out great because it's already been testified to him that once he gets to Jerusalem, trouble is going to be awaiting him. And sure enough, when he goes to the temple to purify himself, some Jews from Asia claim falsely that he was defiling the temple and bringing Gentiles into the temple, which was a big deal. And so a riot ensues, and the plan of the rioters is to kill Paul, to get rid of him. Well, the Roman tribune and the Roman soldiers hear the tumult going on down there in the temple, and they send soldiers down to rescue Paul. They, they lift Paul up on their shoulders, literally, to get him away from this rioting crowd, and Paul stops them as they're carrying him out of the temple and says, let me speak to the people. And that's the first of six different addresses or defenses Paul gives for his faith here in this final part of the book of Acts. That's the first of six. Some of them are more legal, like this situation we're reading about today. Some of them are more informal, like this one, where he's standing before the Jews pleading his case. And he tells them his story, which was pretty much the same thing we just read here today. He tells them his testimony, and he also tells them about how he had come back to Jerusalem, and while he was in the temple in Jerusalem on a previous visit, the Lord Jesus had appeared to him and said, listen, they're not going to accept your testimony about me here. I'm going to send you away to the Gentiles. And when he said that to the Jewish people that were standing there in the temple, that just made them more angry, and they wanted him dead. So he gets taken into the barracks where the tribune decides, hey, I've got to figure out why this guy, what's going on here, why was this riot started? And so he decides the best way to do that is to stretch him out and flog him. And so he stretches Paul out, gets ready to, to, to scourge him, to, to flog him, and uh, Paul reveals that he's a Roman citizen. Well, now this poor tribune's in a real pickle because he can't do that to a Roman citizen. Matter of fact, he's already broken the law by binding a Roman citizen. So he's trying to figure out, trying to get to the bottom of this. He reconvenes he convenes the Sanhedrin, which are the 70 leaders of the Jewish nation. He convenes them, brings Paul before them. And uh, again, Paul begins to share why he's doing this. And he, he mentions that the reason he's really on trial here is because of the hope and resurrection. 
the hope of the resurrection. And that causes a theological divide amongst the Sanhedrin. They get in a big old fight. The, the Sadducees who don't believe in a resurrection and don't believe in miracles or anything else, they're, they're saying one thing and then the, the Pharisees are saying another thing and they're about to tear Paul in half. It's so violent and the tribune has to save Paul again. And he's trying to figure out how on earth can I get to the bottom of this? Well, the Jews plot at that time to try to kill Paul by going to the tribune and asking him to send Paul back for another hearing. And we're going to ambush him on the way. They don't tell the tribune this, but they're going to ambush him on the way and kill him. Matter of fact, some very zealous Jews have made a vow. They're not going to eat or drink until Paul's dead. That's their plan. Well, the tribune gets word of this from Paul's nephew, and he hears that this plot is going on to kill Paul. He can't allow this to happen to a Roman citizen, so he decides to send Paul to Caesarea, and that's where he is today. He sends him with 470 armed soldiers to get him to Caesarea. And he's here in Caesarea. We saw last week how he appeared before the first governor that was mentioned, which is a guy by the name of Festus, Mr. Happy. You remember him? That's what his name means, Happy. And uh, Paul appears before Festus. It's clear the Jews bring their charges. They're baseless. There's no evidence. There's no witnesses. But, but Felix, I'm sorry, I said Festus. I said Felix is what I meant to say. Felix, that governor, he is, um, well, he's a, he's, a, he's a politician. He wants to please the Jews, but he also doesn't want to do bad to a Roman citizen. So he keeps Paul in prison for two years. And during those two years, at some point during those two years, he talks to Paul several times. As a matter of fact, his wife, Drusilla, comes to town, and they want to hear Paul. So they bring Paul in. Paul tells them about faith in Jesus Christ, about self-control, about the coming judgment, and about righteousness. But Felix, Mr. Happy, he doesn't, doesn't listen to Paul. He goes on with his life never knowing what true happiness is. And so we come now, Felix ends up being recalled. He ends up getting taken back to uh, Rome because of his inept governorship. And he's replaced by a, guy that, by a guy by the name of Festus. Now Festus's name means joyful. So you had Mr. Happy and now you have Mr. Joy Joy. Happy and Joy Joy. These guys, these wonderful names these guys have. But neither one of them are ever going to know true happiness or true joy if they don't listen to Paul and respond in faith to the message that he is giving them. Now... A little bit of a summary here on the beginning of chapter 5, the part we didn't read. Festus goes to Jerusalem. He comes. He just gets into town. He goes to Jerusalem, and he hears about these charges that the Jews have brought against Paul. Now, Paul has been in jail now for two years under Felix. Well, the Jews tell him about these charges against Paul, and they want him to bring Paul back to Jerusalem so they can ambush him and kill him. The plan is still in place. These guys who vowed never to eat or drink again must be pretty thin by now. They vowed to kill this guy, and they're still planning on killing him. Well, Festus says, well, let's come to Caesarea. I want to hear what you guys have to say. We basically have a repeat of the trial before Felix. Same charges are brought. Still no proof. Still no evidence. And in this case, Paul has a trump card in place because Festus makes a decision that Felix didn't make. Festus says, you know what, Paul, let's go back to Jerusalem and let you be tried there in front of your own leaders. But Paul knows what their plan is. He knows they have murderous intent. And he says this in verse 10 of chapter 25. I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to ch of these charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. 
And that appeal right there is what seals Paul's trip to Rome. Remember, he's on the path to Rome. He's on the road to Rome. Jesus told him in Acts 23, 11, I'm going to get you to Rome where you're going to bear witness for me. And now, with this appeal to Caesar, it's guaranteed. Festus says, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. But poor Festus is in a predicament now. He can't give Paul to the Jews now because Paul has exercised his right to appeal to the highest court of the land, Caesar's court. But Festus has no idea why Paul is even in jail, has no good evidence to submit to Caesar. Surely he doesn't want the imperial courts to have their time wasted. He just got to town. He doesn't want to already have a bad name for himself. And so Agrippa, the king of Judea, really a puppet king under the Roman Empire, and Bernice come to town. And Festus sees his opportunity now to try to get to the bottom of this. And he presents the case to Festus, I mean to Agrippa, and tells him what all has been going on. In verse 18, he shares about what these accusers had said. He said, when the accusers stood up, they brought no charges in this case of such evils as I had supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus whom was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. You see, all throughout Paul's testimonies, all six of his defenses, the resurrection of Christ is at the center of it all. Agrippa, more than just giving Festus some legal advice, wants to hear Paul himself. And Festus says, sure, you'll hear him tomorrow. And so that's where we come to the text where Deemer began to read today. And so let's set the scene here. We've, we've got the backstory. We've got the previously on Acts. And now let's set the scene. So Agrippa and Bernice come in, it says, with great pomp in verse 23. They entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Imagine the scene, if you will. All the important people are in town. Some sort of processional is probably going on. There's great pomp. Powerful, important people are there. If if this was a movie, the set designer would design some grand hall with gorgeous thrones and ornate decorations. The cast director would would fill the room with plenty of extras. There'd be slaves in there serving these important people. Uh, Pages, assistants, and of course there's the court. And then the costume designer would would design these beautiful flowing dresses for, for Bernice. And some sort of really kingly robes and crown for King Agrippa. And of course, there's Festus in his toga, which was only allowed to be worn by Roman citizens. And with all the colors that signified his status as a Roman governor. So that's the scene. And then, not as part of the processional, but after all the processional and the pomp is done, then comes shuffling in Paul with these chains attached to his hands and his feet. At the command of Festus, it says, Paul was brought in. How blind the people were to what was really happening. Here was this court and this king and this governor representing Caesar's imperial power and all these people of high standing. And then in walks the ambassador of the king of kings, of the ruler of the universe without any pomp. Without any praise. There stood lowly Paul, unattractive Paul, unadorned Paul. Scripture's already told us that he wasn't really a looker, okay? He's probably bald. He doesn't see very well. He's probably short. 
Yet Christ's power is made perfect in weakness. And he's about to impart wisdom, although not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Now before he speaks, Festus sort of outlines the dilemma again. You know, he says, I don't have anything to write to the king. I don't have anything to send to, to Caesar. And so he's appealing to, to, to Agrippa there and all the others who were there. Listen to Paul and help me figure out what I got to write. It almost sounds like he's whining to me. I don't have anything to write. Please help me. So he's there and he says, help me. Help me write something. And so Agrippa says to Paul in verse 1 of chapter 26, you have permission to speak for yourself. So we have the backstory. The scene has been set. And now we come to the main act. We come to the key witness. Interestingly enough, Paul seems less interested in defending himself than he is about witnessing about Jesus. It is here we, we listen to Paul's testimony that we'll find four points that I want to make today from this sermon. Four points. I want us to take four general things away from this sermon. It's in your notes. I want to look specifically at what the risen Lord Jesus did in Paul's life and then apply four general truths about the risen Jesus overall. Four truths about this promised one, this risen King of Kings. So now let's walk through Paul's testimony. And you'll notice that, as I said earlier, that Paul seems more interested in witnessing about Jesus than defending himself. And in his act of witnessing about Jesus, he gives us some of the essentials of the gospel. So verse 1 says, Paul stretched out his hand. Now you can imagine, he's got chains on his hand. He stretched out his hand, they're clattering, and he made his defense. Verse 2. I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now, Paul, just as he had done with Felix, demonstrates respect, honesty, yet directness with someone in authority over him. He continues in verse 4. My manner of life from my youth spent from the very beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. Now, there may have been some of the Jews and high priests. Probably they were there as well. They knew Paul. He had grown up in their town. He had been the up-and-coming guy. He was the prodigy. He was the one everyone expected to be the next great Pharisee. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Verse 5. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Paul quickly gets to the heart of the matter. He wasn't truly on trial because of accusations regarding the defiling of the temple or because he was teaching Jews around the world to, to go against the Mosaic law or because of riots. There wasn't a shred of evidence regarding any of those charges. But deep down underneath them all was the fact that Paul was teaching and proclaiming about a Nazarene named Jesus and that this Jesus, whom the Jews and the Romans had killed, but whom Paul asserted to be alive, was the real reason for this trial. Paul had proclaimed this, and he proclaimed that this Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the hope of Israel. Now Paul came from the most strict, conservative, Bible-believing group of Jews there ever was. And by God's intervening grace alone, his eyes had been opened to the truth 
that the one whom the whole nation had been waiting for had come. The one whom they'd been hoping for. Notice the word hope here. It's repeated over and over again in these first verses. I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O King. You see, Paul had previously tied the hope of Israel to the resurrection in Acts chapter 23, verse 6, when he said, It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. He was proclaiming that Jesus was this hope. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises. Jesus was the meaning behind all the scriptures. But what made this so scandalous to the Jews is that this Jesus was not what they had hoped for. He was the hope promised in the Old Testament, but he didn't turn out to be what they had hoped for. He was the hope of nations, but he wasn't, they wanted a conqueror of nations. Instead, they got a lowly peasant carpenter who taught big but acted like a slave, hung out with the riffraff, and ruffled the feathers of the teachers and leaders of the Jewish people. But worst of all, this man had been killed in the most humiliating fashion, crucified, hung on a tree, cursed of God. This man could never be the hope of Israel in their eyes. To most Jews, it was a disgusting, foul, offensive, and revolting thing to claim that this was their Messiah. They were better than that. And they were thrilled when Pilate executed him. Only to now have his disciples claiming that he had risen? Impossible. Incredible. Never. But the hope that Jesus brought was not the hope of deliverance from political oppression from a Roman tyranny. No, his hope was of a greater deliverance, the deliverance over sin and death. And through his death and his resurrection, both sin and death were defeated. Now that's hope, because death in Christ has been swallowed up in victory. Paul, knowing that they had refused to see that Christ must die and be raised, exclaims in verse 8, Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Jesus had told them exactly what the prophets had told them, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed after three days and rise again. The Jews believed, well, for the most part, most of them did, they believed in a resurrection and they believed in a Messiah. They just couldn't believe that their Messiah must suffer and die and be resurrected. They had their religion, but their religion was empty. It was devoid of power. It was aimless. They had missed the mark. They had missed the meaning, the purpose of their religion. They had missed the meaning, the purpose of all of Scripture. Indeed, they had missed the meaning and purpose of all of history. It was all about Jesus, his life, his death, and yes, his resurrection. So my first point today is this. The risen King Jesus, and y'all can go back one for me. The risen King Jesus gives meaning to all of history. The risen King Jesus gives meaning to all of history. It's funny because Deemer and I were just talking before we we started. I've got a little illustration I'm going to do here in a second. But he, he was asking, what do churches do who don't believe in the resurrection? There are churches that don't believe, they're denominations and Churches that don't believe in the risen Christ. What do they do on Easter? What's this day about? And, and it kind of reminds me of these Pharisees and these Jewish leaders. And Now kids, how many of you like getting chocolate bunnies around Easter time? 
if you get chocolate bunnies, all right? Now, my daughter raised her hand. She wants this one. I can tell by the look in her eyes, okay? Now, I remember getting chocolate bunnies. Do you, but do you ever remember the great, grand disappointment when you would get one of these? What's wrong with it? It's hollow. It's empty. It looks great. Oh, my goodness. That's enough chocolate to last me for 10 minutes. Oh, my goodness. Wow. And you look at it, and then you bite into it, and it's just air. What? My parents gave me air encased in chocolate. It's a disappointment. Now, oops. See how hollow that sounded? Now, I have another bunny here that I found. These are harder to come by. Now, this one is solid through and through. Now, this is a chocolate bunny. This is what kids want. They don't want those hollow things. Okay, they want the solid things. Okay, and, and when I think about what the Jews were doing, they had the appearance of some grand religious experience, but it was hollow and empty. It was devoid of any power. And, and so I wonder, you know, what our church is doing today. Are they coming and talking about what a great moral teacher Jesus was? Are they talking about how he lives on in the memory of his people? If they are, then it's just like an empty shell. It, it's nothing. It may look good on the outside, but it's just air. We're here preaching that Christ has physically risen and he's alive today and he reigns. That's what this is all about. That's what Paul's message was all about. That's why he was so frustrated with the Jews. They had missed it. They had lived an empty religion and they had missed it. He says, why, why does this seem so incredible to you guys? You should know, my fellow Pharisees, you should know. You've read the scriptures. You've read Isaiah. You've read the scriptures. You should know that the meaning of all the scriptures, the meaning of all our Judaism, and indeed the meaning of all of history resides in the risen Christ. He is the centerpiece of all of history. He wasn't only the hope of Israel. Isaiah predicted he was the light for the nations, the salvation that would reach the ends of the earth. All the scripture pointed to him. Jesus himself said, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. All of history points to him. Deemer read earlier, 1 Corinthians 15, 12. And I'm not going to read it again, but you heard the text. It said this on verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. I almost think at this point, Paul almost pauses. Again, I wish there were cameras in there. Pauses. And maybe he's overwhelmed with compassion for his listeners. I think Paul was compassionate and winsome when he spoke. Overwhelmed with compassion because he then begins to relate his story. Almost as to, to sympathetically identify himself with the hardened hearts that he'd been speaking to, Paul continues in verse 9, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, 
But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with all the authority and commission of the chief priests. You see, Paul himself had been a hardened rebel, rebelling against the risen king, rebelling against King Jesus. He was a hardened, rebellious insurrectionist against God until the risen king intervened in his life. Verse 13, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. Have you ever wondered why Luke includes the detail that Paul was traveling at midday? Did you know it was not common to do traveling at midday? You did it in the morning hours, you did it in the evening hours because it was cooler. The hot, it was hot in the Middle East. It gets hot. The sun's out. You usually don't travel at midday. But why does the Holy Spirit have Paul traveling down the road at midday to demonstrate that the light that was about to shine on him was brighter than anything man could imagine? Boom! This light appears. He's traveling. There's the midday sun. And something so bright and magnificent and glorious shines upon him in an instant that it makes the sun disappear. Have you ever taken a flashlight outside in the middle of the day and tried to turn it on? You can't see it. Because it doesn't have any power against that sunlight. But the power of Jesus, the glory and the brightness of the risen Christ outshone the sun that day when Paul was going down the road to Damascus. So at midday, this bright sun, this bright light hits in verse 14. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? Now, I think Paul probably had a pretty good idea at this point who this was. Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. What, what beauty there is here in this fact that Jesus says, you're persecuting me, Paul. What that says about the union of Christ's people with him is, is beautiful and amazing. We don't have time to go into all the implications of it today. But this is us. If you're a Christian here today, it is solely, and I mean solely, because the risen King Jesus interrupted your rebellious plans. That's the only reason you're a Christian. You can take no credit. Instead, you can only acknowledge that you were wholly and soundly defeated by King Jesus and had nothing to do but surrender to his irresistible grace. The goads. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. You know what that was? It was a sharp stick that they would use to poke cattle to get them moving in a direction. And the cattle might kick against it. Who always won that battle? The shepherd or the cows? The shepherd. He had the goads. He was going to get that cattle exactly where he wanted it. God is invincible in his purposes. And he is pointing Paul exactly where he wanted him to be. And Paul couldn't kick against the goads any longer. When Christ sets out to conquer a soul for his glory, he wins. And so my next point is this. The risen King Jesus brings undeserved mercy to repentant rebels. When Paul heard, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, I'm sure he thought he was dead. But nope, instead he was saved. He had been chosen. He had been made new, redeemed, justified, adopted, and put on an irrevocable, sanctifying path towards glorification through the power of the risen King 
Jesus. Paul, now dead to sin and risen with Christ, is commanded to rise and go on mission for the King Jesus, whom he had been rebelling against. Verse 16, but rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Verse 18 is key. To open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, and they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul was essentially sent on mission to be used as God's instrument to see happen in others what God had just done in him. Opening of eyes, it says in verse 18, to open their eyes. Now, Paul couldn't open their eyes. Only God could open their eyes. But the message Paul was going to give them was the instrument God would use to open their eyes. Paul was to speak it. The gospel message would bring new life. Just like when God spoke into nothingness, ex nihilo, and created, so too God speaks his gospel word into our hearts and makes new life come from dead, barren souls. Paul was to go and to proclaim this gospel, opening eyes, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm fine, was blind, but now I see. The opening of eyes has a purpose, it says, so that they may turn, so that they may turn, repentance. Repentance is only possible when eyes have been opened. Darkness is not darkness to a blind person. If someone walks in here and the lights are off in this room, but that person is blind, it means nothing to them. Darkness means nothing to a person who is blind. But when a person's eyes are open, let's say that person who's walking in here is suddenly healed of their blindness, all of a sudden now, That darkness means something and they need to turn from it. They need to find light. Eyes are opened. Only when sight is restored does light matter and does darkness become a problem. Only when spiritual eyes are opened does the sinner see his sin for what it is. Horrid, dark rebellion against the king. If there is no repentance, that's the only evidence that there was never any sight. If there is no repentance, if there's no desire to abandon the darkness, that's just evidence that the person is still walking in the darkness. Because when the eyes are open, you don't want to walk in that darkness any longer. Turning from darkness to light, which also means turning from one king to another, from Satan to God, from the prince of the power of the air, from the ruler of this world to the prince of peace, to the ruler of the cosmos. And in repentance, in turning to the risen king, there is forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are being sanctified. And it's all received here, Paul says in verse 18, by faith in Christ. Faith in me is what Jesus said to Paul. That's all. Faith, rest, trust, belief. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Not religion, not the keeping of moral laws, not good deeds, but faith alone. Now certainly Paul had been uniquely commissioned with apostolic authority and power, but his mission is the same as ours. Thus my third point is simply this. The risen King Jesus has a mission for his people. If we claim to have surrendered to the King of the universe, King Jesus, the risen Lord, 
then we have been enlisted into his triumphant army and we are on mission to take the message of faith and repentance to the whole world. It is not optional. The Great Commission is for all of us. Acts 1-8 is for all of us. Matter of fact, we see Paul beginning to live out Acts 1-8 as he continues his testimony. Look at verse 19. He says, Therefore, okay, or because, because he's still been radically transformed by this king. Therefore, King Agri- O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient. Our obedience is the result of the transformation, not the cause of it. Therefore, King Agrippa, in light of this transformation that happened to me, I was not disobedient. Don't get the cart before the horse. Don't try to obey Jesus if he hasn't transformed your life. It won't happen. You can't do it. The transformation happens first. He was obedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Paul restates the message here that he had faithfully proclaimed. The word turn here in this verse we just mentioned is the same one used just a minute ago in verse 18. So he's now restating what he had stated earlier about turning from darkness to light, from Satan to God. That's the message. Turn. And then he expands upon what it means when he said earlier that we are, have a place among those who are being sanctified when he says that we are to perform deeds in keeping with repentance. Again, good deeds cannot save anyone. Only turning to Christ in faith can save. But we are saved so that we can do good deeds. That's what sanctification is. If you're becoming more like Christ, you're becoming more holy, which means you're living more holy, which means you're doing more good deeds. That's sanctification. Paul continues, and he gets to the heart of why he's been dragged here from court to court in verse 21. For this reason. For what reason? Because of his mission and his message about the risen Lord. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God. So I stand here testifying to both small and great. The gospel message that Paul proclaimed was for small and great. It knew no social boundaries gender boundaries, racial boundaries. To the slave boy in the chamber, to the king on the throne, Paul proclaimed this truth about Jesus. So I stand here testifying to both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Paul was preaching no new thing, no novelty, but an ancient truth. This was not apostasy, it was continuity. All the promises of God, all the laws, All the prophets, Genesis 3.15, it all finds its yes in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was what Isaiah had said so long ago, and Paul quotes right here in verse 23, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And that's the message the world needs to hear, that the Christ, the hope for all humanity, had to suffer and die as a perfect sacrifice to make payment for sin. And he lived a life that only God could live and died a death that man deserved to die. Perfect man, holy God, God incarnate, suffering and dying. And then he rose triumphant from the dead. The perfect sacrifice had been accepted by God. Death had been undone. Sin had been overthrown. The final victory had been won. And now he, Jesus, through union with his church, his body would proclaim light 
to the whole world. It says in verse 23, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And so my final point is this. Not only does the risen King Jesus give us meaning to all of history, not only does the risen King Jesus bring undeserved mercy to repentant rebels, not only does the risen King Jesus have a mission for his people, the risen King Jesus is our message for the onlooking world. But the world doesn't want to hear that message. The world considers it insane. In verse 24, as he was saying these things, Festus interrupts. Now, have you ever watched Supreme Court proceedings? The Supreme Court justices have the right to interrupt the counsel anytime they want to. It's almost frustrating sometimes because I, I hate being interrupted. When my kids interrupt me, I say, let me finish. All right? But, 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 don't. Now, I hate being interrupted. Now, but if you're in a court setting, the, the judge has every right to interrupt you at any moment he wants to. If you watch those Supreme Court hearings, like the ones recently on the health care law, this, the, the counsel will start talking. Now, judge, now ask, let me ask you a question. You know, they start bur blurting in. Or, Come on, can I not just say what's written here on the sheet? Well, that's what happens to Paul here. He's going. Man, he's getting heavy with the gospel here. Boom, boom, boom. And Festus, good old Mr. Joy Joy, shouts out. It says he's in a loud voice. Paul, you have lost it, dude. You've lost your marbles. You're off your rocker. Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. That's what the world says. When you go to a dark world and you say, Jesus is alive. He has risen. He is alive. I know him. Matter of fact, I'm united to him. Let me tell you about him. Most of the world says, you, my friend, are nuts. You've lost it. But Paul said... I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I, I, Paul is so good. I mean, he could have said, Festus, shut up. I'm talking to Agrippa. He doesn't. He says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. That word rational also means reason, reasonable words. True and rational words. My friends, Christianity is built on truth and reason. For the king knows about these things, and, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Christianity is built on truth and reason based upon actual events in history. This was not done in a corner. No other book of faith, you can go look at the Quran, you can go look at the Book of Mormon, whatever you want, you will find historical inaccuracies and things that are based on pure fantasy in every one of those books. But this book right here is historically, historically reliable and accurate and has been proven so in every piece of archaeology that someone finds that they think they're going to disprove the Bible with, it ends up happening the opposite. It ends up proving more and more that this book is actually true and reliable. Christianity has not been done in a corner. And so now our courtroom drama, the cameras sort of zoom in on Paul as we come now to the climax. This is the part where the music rises. And Paul looks at King Agrippa and says this, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. 
Now the audience gasps. <gasps> Can you hear the, the, the crowd out there? <gasps> He's not supposed to be asking the questions of the judge. It's supposed to be the other way around. <gasps> King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. What boldness. And how will the king respond? King Agrippa, like any good politician who knows how to evade a question, answers his question with another question. King Agrippa says to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? But Paul, too, he's quick on his feet. And I love his response. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all, the slave sitting on the floor washing the feet of the king, to Bernice sitting right beside the king, to Festus, I wish that all who hear me this day might become such as I am. And then just to add a little dramatic flair, he lifts up those chains. Well, except for these chains. Except for these chains. What a drama. What an amazing scene. And we need a good ending, right? So you got your movie going. Okay, so we're going to sell this plot to Hollywood, right? You got, it's got to have a good ending, right? Where King Agrippa comes off his throne and falls on his knees and says, Yes, I believe in King Jesus. My friends, rarely does the happy ending happen when we're testifying about Jesus Christ. Broad is the way that leads to destruction, narrow path that leads to eternal life. Most will do exactly what King Agrippa did. Just ignore it. It says, then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. They go off and they begin to talk about the legal minutia. It's like they didn't even hear what Paul had just talked about. This has nothing to do with Caesar or anything. You know, pastors sometimes can get frustrated. You preach your heart out. You try to preach accurately and preach the gospel. And when you get done, you hear some of the conversations and it's, what are we going to do for lunch today? There doesn't seem to be any weight to the message. This is weighty stuff. This requires a response from everyone. Even if you're a believer, meditating upon the cross, meditating upon the gospel and what Jesus accomplished for you should have an effect on you to where you don't just walk out and just begin to talk about the minutiae of life. To be heavy. It should weigh upon your soul. But not on Agrippa and Bernice. It's a sad ending. They're unaffected. They do nothing. They get back to the technicalities of the case. Clearly Paul's not guilty, but they don't see their own guilt before a greater king and a greater judge. They didn't want to hear what Paul had to say. Repent? Kidding me? Turn? That would mean Agrippa would have to give up his sinful life he was so greatly enjoying. Do you know who Bernice was? Bernice was his sister. Now, if you read the text, you're thinking that's the queen. Well, she was that too. He was living in an incestuous relationship with his sister. 
They happen to be the brother and sister of Drusilla as well. He didn't want to turn from this. Even a wickedness that the pagan world thought was bad. He enjoyed his sin. It meant he'd have to give up too much. Repent. And faith? You're telling this Festus to put his faith and his hope in some man that a previous governor had nailed to a cross? Are you kidding me? That was for slaves and for the scum of the earth. I'm Festus. Repent, turn, and put their faith in Christ. It meant nothing to them because they enjoyed the darkness and they couldn't see the light. But we don't know. One of the great joys, I heard another preacher talk about this recently. One of the great joys of getting to heaven is going to be when you get to meet people who were affected by some of these stories, but they weren't written about. So can you imagine being in heaven and you meet this guy. Hey, what's your name? Oh, my name's so-and-so. Great. Well, tell me your story. Well, do you remember what Luke wrote in, in Acts 26, that big court scene or anything? Yeah, yeah. I, I was one of the slaves in there. I'd come in that day to, to wash the king's feet as he sat on the throne. Or maybe I was one of the court officials there. Or maybe I was one of the scribes and the Pharisees. And, and I went and looked at the scriptures and Paul was right. <laughs> he was right. We don't know how many are affected by the message that we send to the onlooking world. All we know is that the risen King Jesus will be triumphant, and all who belong to him will be saved. Here's what we do know. The risen King Jesus gives meaning to all of history. The risen King Jesus brings undeserved mercy to repentant rebels. The risen King Jesus has a mission for his people, and the risen King Jesus is our message for the onlooking world. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes now. With every head bowed and every eye closed, Put yourself in the seat of King Agrippa. If you're here this morning and you already belong to King Jesus, then just celebrate the words of Paul when he says, Do you believe the prophets? Do you believe what all of Scripture points to? But if you're here this morning and you've never placed your hope in Jesus Christ, that question is for you. And you have a choice to make. You can either fall on your face in complete surrender to the true king of the universe. Or you can walk away. And if you fall on your face with true surrender to the king of the universe, it's because God is doing a work in your heart. Give him all the praise. Give him all the glory. Let's pray right now. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd move in this place. Have your way with our hearts. Lord, let us not be unaffected by the cross and the resurrection. Let us not be unaffected by these things. that Just something that happened long ago, a part of what we believe and we do and celebrate once a year. Fools we are if we act that way, Lord. Convict us of our sin. Help us to see that this risen Lord Jesus wants to have a say in every single part of our life. Not just an audience on Easter. So God, I pray you'd move in our hearts. 
cause us to repent, cause us to turn, cause eyes to be opened. If there are blind eyes in this room right now, Lord, none of my teaching, none of my rhetoric, nothing can change a bit of that. Only the work of the Holy Spirit can open eyes. So move, Holy Spirit, please, we beg you to come open blind eyes this morning. Come, Lord Jesus, and do whatever you want in our hearts. Let us respond appropriately as we sing songs. But Lord, whether we're singing or not, Lord, may the condition of our heart be laid bare. And may we come to the risen King and beg Him for mercy to repentant rebels. God, we thank you. We pray now that you just have your way with the rest of this service. We praise you this Easter. You have done great things. And Jesus has risen. He has risen indeed. We give him all the praise and the glory. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Please stand if you would as we sing.